Hello, everyone. This is WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. We're also streaming live at WVEW.org. Thanks, Ralph, for that amazing song as we head out, and it's always good to see you in the show as we start. Welcome back. It's always nice to see you. <laughs> Thanks so much. You're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections, on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our com- community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Indigo Radio. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. This is Becca, and I'm a teacher in Springfield, Vermont. I'm Marisa, also a teacher in Springfield. And I'm Nina. Um, I'm a currently grad student at UMass Boston. And we are all graduates of the Spark Teacher Training Program, so we'll hope that people will come and join us for our big graduation um, in that is going to be May 9th and 10th. But also before that, we next weekend we do have um, sort of an event at the library, which we'll talk about more towards the end. So. so today we'll be discussing the media narratives around food and analyzing them Uh, within a historical context in Venezuela uh, through the lens of food politics. Um, We'll be talking with Asis Castellanos, who will give us a little background about uh, U.S. envoy to Venezuela, Elliot Abrams. Um, Then we'll turn to the history of food in Venezuela. And then at the end, we'll wrap up with some media misrepresentation of what's happening on the ground in Venezuela today. So, Becca, what song are we going to start with? I believe we have Seeds of Freedom by Manu Chao. That is correct. And here we go. Seeds of freedom, time has come. Seeds of freedom, life will overcome. Seeds of freedom. Seeds of freedom, life will overcome. Small seed, big tree, gardens of hope. Everywhere, just to share, gardens of hope. Seeds of freedom, time has come. Seeds of freedom, life will overcome. Small seed, big tree. Gardens of hope, wind blows in gold from head to head. Seeds of freedom, seeds of freedom, seeds of freedom. Little by little, hold my cheek. Seeds of freedom for seeds, no more slavery. Suicides and cruelty. Seeds of freedom. Stand up together. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Seeds of freedom. Seeds of freedom. Time has come. Seeds of freedom. Life will overcome. Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio. This is our part two on Venezuela in a series. We're going to be having a couple more shows coming up. We talked two weeks ago, three weeks ago now maybe, um, about a little bit about what's happening in the history of Venezuela with Professor Alejandro Velasco. And he, I don't, he's also a writer for um, NACLA, the North American Center for Latin America. Um, and this week we are talking about, um, uh, we want to do an overview right now about what's been happening in Venezuela. So on January 23rd, the Trump administration announced it was recognizing Juan Guaido, currently the head of the Venezuelan National Assembly, as interim president of the country. 
Um, by doing so, Washington basically impro- imposed a trade embargo against Venezuela. Um, any revenue from oil sales to about three quarters of Venezuela's export markets um, would no longer go to the government, but to the interim president. And so since then, it's essentially been a um, kind of standoff between Maduro, who was um, democratically elected, and by many accounts, the elections were free and fair, um, and then Guaido, who was elected essentially by the U.S. government. And Guaido has been um, doing visits to different countries, including Colombia and Brazil, even though he has a Supreme Court order against him from leaving the country. Um, his assets has, have also been frozen, although the U.S. is trying to funnel billions of assets from oil subsidies into away from the Venezuelan government into the hands of Guaido. And essentially the U.S. has been, um, through the media, presenting this quote-unquote humanitarian crisis um, as a reason to oust Maduro and put into power Juan Guaido. Um, the U.S. has been weaponizing the humanitarian aid. Um, food is being used as bullets, as they have said. Um, and that's that's where we stand right now, I think. Correct? Yeah, and so we want to really look at that media around, f- or the media narrative around food, and we're going to do so in a way that is looking at the history of Venezuela through the lens of the politics of food. Um, but before we do that, we wanted to talk about Elliot Abrams as the envoy to Venezuela. He has a long history in uh, Central America when he was working for the U.S. government in the 80s. So we're going to actually share with you a clip, um, which is Ilan Omar um, questioning Elliot Abrams um, about his history, uh, his role in Central America. Thank you, Chairman. Um, thank you all for being here, and thank you for your uh, testimonies. Mr. Adams, in 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress regarding your involvement in the iran Cortra affair, for which you were later pardoned by President George H.W. Bush. I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful? If I can respond to that. Uh, um, it wasn't a question. I, I, On it was Febu- that was it not, was that was not a question. I that was the, I, I reserve the right I'm to my sorry. time. It is, not, it is not right. That was members not a question. Can attack On February a 8th. Who is not permitted to reply. That That was not a question. Thank you for your participation. On February 8, 1982, you testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about U.S. policy in El Salvador. In that hearing, you dismissed as communist propaganda report about the massacre of El Mosote, in which more than 800 civilians, including children as young as two years old, were brutally murdered by U.S.-trained troops. During that massacre, some of those troops bragged about raping a 12-year-old girl before they killed them. Girls before they killed them. You later said that the U.S. policy in El Salvador was a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you still think so? From the day that President Duarte was elected in a free election to this day, El Salvador has been a democracy. That's a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you think that massacre was a fabulous achievement that happened under our watch? That is a ridiculous question, and I yes or no? No. I will will take that as a yes. I am not going to respond to that kind of personal attack. Which is not a question. Yes or no, would you support an armed faction within Venezuela that engages in war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide, 
if you believe they were serving U.S. interests, as you did in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua? I am not going to respond to that question. I'm sorry. I don't think this entire line of questioning is meant to be real questions, and so I will not reply. Whether you, under your watch, a genocide will take place, and you will look the other way because American interests were being upheld, is a fair question. Because the American people want to know that anytime we engage a country, that we think about what our actions could be and how we believe our values are being farthered. That is my question. Will you make sure that human rights are not violated and that we uphold international and human rights? I suppose there is a question in there, and the answer is that the entire thrust of American policy in Venezuela <clears throat> is to support the Venezuelan people's effort to restore democracy to their country. That's our policy. I don't think anybody disputes that. The question I had for you is that the interest, does the interest of the United States include protecting human rights and include protecting people against genocide? That is always the position of the United States. Thank you. I yield back my time. Welcome back. You're listening to um, Indigo Radio on WBEWLP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM. Um, and current today, we're talking about Venezuela, and we're talking about um, what's happening today, the Bolivarian Revolution, and food politics. Um, and we... Um, we're just listening to Elliot Abrams being questioned by Representative um, Omar, which was amazing. And we currently online have Assis. Well, hi, Assis. Can you hear us? Yes, I, I can. Hi, hey, welcome so much. Um, thank you so much, I mean, <laughs> to the program and for chatting with us. I know you've been on Indigo Radio before, and we always appreciate you uh, speaking with us. Yes, uh, thank you for, for inviting me. So, Assis, may you just tell us a little bit about um, how you became to know so much about Elliot Abrams and, um, and his role in Central America? Uh, I'm from, from uh, Honduras, and uh, so as uh, someone who's involved in uh, social movements and, and the Honduran resistance, uh we uh we are very aware of uh who Elliot Abrams is and his role uh in the dirty wars in, in the nineteen uh eighties in, in Central America. Um, so to this question of uh Elliot Abrams role in Central America, uh as we uh, we know he uh, he held uh, multiple positions uh at the State Department under President Ronald Reagan. Including, including, you know, Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, and uh, let's remember that that in uh, in 1991 uh, he pleaded guilty uh, to two mis uh, counts of for like uh, withholding information from Congress about secret efforts to uh, uh, to fund the, the contracts in, in Nicaragua. And later on, remember that President uh, President uh, George H. W. Bush pardoned him in 1992. So Abrams was also deputy uh, national security advisor uh, under uh, George W. Bush administration, and was a key a key figure in the Middle East policy. I remember uh, that he was Middle East expert on the National Security Council at that time. Uh, and he he also played a key role uh, supporting the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Uh, Abrams also uh, was one of the masterminds, uh, uh, as being documented and, and denounced behind the 2002 d'etat attempt against Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. He supported a, a, a military coup attempt in Venezuela. So let's not forget that. 
And uh, remember that by the time uh, uh, the Bush administration uh, tried to uh, uh, hide uh, the U.S. involved in, in that coup attempt, what is uh, different, what is happening now, that we see the U.S. government in the front line uh, leading the, this uh, new uh, coup attempt in, in Venezuela. So uh, uh, when we ask about the history of uh, Elliot Abrams' uh, actions or role in Central America, if we can uh, synthesize in one word, uh, for me, could be one of the genocide. Uh, he's uh, he's uh, for uh, a lot of people. He's uh, a war gen, uh, uh, criminal war, uh, a war criminal. Let's remember that. Uh, it's important to uh, to go back to the 60s uh, and 70s. Uh, remember that after the the uh, Cuban Revolution uh, in 1951, the geopolitical uh, land in Latin America shifted, uh, uh, and also shifted the role of the U.S. Uh, government by the time to to Latin America. So, Elliot Abrams come, uh, came from uh, from the school of the Plan uh, Condor, or also known as Operation Condor, that uh, uh, it was a political and military uh, repression carried out by the U.S. that uh, led to the uh, thousands and thousands of, uh, of uh, uh, disappearance and assassination in, in Latin America. For example, in, Latin, in, in Argentina, we are talking about more than uh, 30,000 uh, people. Uh, was uh, assassinated, uh, were assassinated uh, under the uh, Operation Condor. Uh, and Elliot Abrams come, uh, came from that school, from uh, that uh, uh, way to approach uh, 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 alternative uh, governments uh, in Latin America. So, Abrams. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, sorry? I'm just wondering before you go on. So, with all of these um, places that he's been involved, what to you, what's your analysis of um, the reason for these kinds of actions <clears throat> and currently today in Venezuela? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, Alien, uh, uh, Alien Abrams, uh, as I said, uh, came from this uh uh, history of Operation Condor in, in Latin America, and he, uh, for me, uh, represents uh, uh, right-wing, uh, extreme right-wing uh, uh, coalition in, in, in the world, in, in a specific in Latin America, uh, that is trying to, uh, uh, again, uh, take control and power of the uh, geopolitical uh, uh, landscape of Latin America, uh, and they—they've been—it's not something new. They've been working since the beginning of the, of the Bolivarian Revolution in, in, in 1990, uh, uh, 1999 with Hugo Chavez. They've been working in the last in the last 20 years, and the last two uh, attempt uh, uh, was carefully crafted in uh, at least in the last two one year. Uh, so uh, Alien Abrams is someone that uh, know how to do the dirty uh, uh, work, and uh, and he's he's uh, so when he was uh, named uh, appointed, uh, then announced in January by the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was not a surprise because Abrams uh, is a man that uh, has a history of genocide and in 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 the eighties. It knows how to do this, how to carry uh, coup d'etat, because that's that he he does in in Latin America. So, Assis, um, this is Becca. Thank you so much for joining us. And I just had a question for you around um, Elliot Abrams has been um, kind of in charge of things U.S. relations. So right now in Venezuela for a month, and I was wondering if there are any things that are happening currently in Venezuela that um, spark the historical memory specifically of what he's done in the past with the dirty wars in Central America? Yeah, uh, I think the last two months, uh, 
uh, been very intense. Uh, uh, for example, if we ask about what uh, what is happening geopolitically in Latin America, uh, and how as uh, Jorge Arreaza, the Minister of the People's Power for Foreign Affairs of, uh, of Venezuela, uh, has denounced. Uh, now, uh, what we are seeing uh, with the U.S. government uh, leading in the front line, this coup attempt, uh, is happening because of uh, the, the changes that has uh, uh, occurred in, in Latin America in the last, in the last decade meaning that uh, the right wing is again uh, taking control of government and uh, getting in office. So now uh, the U.S. Uh, the US uh, government is able to, uh, you know, lead this openly uh, because now they have, uh, the U.S. government has somehow uh, uh, support of at least 16 uh, countries in Latin America that are clearly uh, 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 right wing governments. And they're trying to undermine the uh, Bolivarian revolution. Uh, so Jorge Jorge Reza has denounced that uh, the U.S. government uh, has tried to uh, uh, gain legitimacy from from for first from the organization of the American states, the OAS. Uh, they couldn't uh, at, at the end. Uh, they uh, they wouldn't succeed. Then they went after the United Nations. Uh, remember that uh, Mike Pompeo called for a Security Council meeting that uh, in the last two weeks, and uh, Jorge Arreaza said that uh, this meeting was a kind of uh, 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 victory, if we call it, if we can call it victory, because uh, the U.S. government couldn't uh, uh, have support of the United Nations to uh, uh, to invade. Uh, uh, Venezuela. So for us, that was that's yes, that's a kind of, of victory because uh, the United, the U.S. government couldn't uh, uh, have that support. Even though uh, it's important to to uh, to remember that uh, the U.S. government uh, has put sanctions, economic sanctions in uh, in, in in Venezuela that is not uh, that. Let's let's call it what it is. It's a it's a blockade. It's an economic blockade, and now Venezuela is uh, facing a uh, a blockade uh, led by by the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Uh, a government, the U.S. government that has threatened Venezuela with the use of force, threatened Venezuela with a military invasion that he's uh, that is giving orders to other countries uh, to block Venezuela. Uh, so we should ask: Is this really a? Uh, is this, the U.S. government really uh, want to provide humanitarian aid to, to Venezuela. Uh, Jorge Arreza in the last uh, Security Council uh, meeting denounced that uh, the U.S. government has uh, illegally uh, con- confiscated more of, more of $30 uh, uh, billion dollars, uh, from the Venezuelan assets in, in petroleum. Uh, so if they if they really want to call this a, a humanitarian crisis, well, let's lay uh, lay out the uh, real context of what is creating this uh, so-called humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. That's a perfect spot um, for us to to pause, Assis. You're leading us right into the next section of our show, which is on uh, food and the, the food crisis, as it's called. Um, so we'll have to pause here, um, but thank you so much for your time and your history, um, and we look forward to hearing from you again on Indigo Radio. Thank you, yeah, Assis. Yeah, thank you for, for inviting me. Thank you so much. So that was Assis Castellanos. Um, he was telling us about Elliot Abrams and um, what his appointment means for Venezuela. We're going to uh, listen now to, are we listening Gil to Gil Scott Heron? <laughs> the revolution will not be televised. Thank you. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. 
The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the Schaefer Award Theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on report from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott nor sung by Dave Campbell. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks everyone's books for their support of this station. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Um, This week we're talking about Venezuela. Uh, You just heard the revolution will not be televised. Um, And we've just spoken with Assis Castellanos, who talked a little bit about Elliot Abrams, the new U.S. envoy to Venezuela and the, um, his history of genocide in Central America and Africa. And now we're going to move to the, um, food, talking about food in Venezuela. Um, so, Nina, can you set the context a little bit in terms of the history of food and agriculture in Venezuela? Sure. Um, so... And, and we have to give credit to, I have to give credit, you know, a lot of this information comes from an article, um, which we're, hap- we're happy to link up um, on our Facebook. But um, it starts out in the 16th century um, when this continent was um, being colonized. And Venezuela specifically, um, of course, the en- enslaved Africans were were being brought over and it was a slave-based economy in Venezuela. Um, and that sort of economy, that slave-based economy that produced cocoa and coffee became an agro-export economy at that time in the 16th century. Um, and like that kind of sets the stage for uh, just sort of like the relationships between people and food. And there was also the plantation conuco system so the Konuko system is basically like if you think of the medieval era and the commons. I mean, a lot of countries had it. Like Mexico had it, has this like the, the commons where people, anybody can grow food there for themselves. Um, so later, l- later on. Oh, yeah. oh, I was just going to say something. Well, something that is really interesting about this plantation Konuko system that existed is that it still exists in a lot of forms today. Yeah. Um, and particularly around the plantation and the export crops set the stage for um, capitalism right. on a global scale today. Um, and also the Canuco system, this idea of communal plots for subsistence still exists today in Venezuela. So these two 
different types of growing food exist hand in hand, which is really interesting. And right. we'll talk more about that in the show. And, and it's important to understand that these konukos are places, again, where people grow their own food for subsistence, right? So that they can live and, and nourish themselves. Um, and I think an important point um, is that, you know, th there was the, bol um, the Simon Voli Bolivar revolution, right? Um, to push the, the European colonizers out. But it's really important to understand that um, that independence did not mean that relationships between different classes, that it didn't change. Um, the wealthy kept um, a lot of the land, um, but also at this time, 16th, 17th century, the diet, the, what the article called dietary identity. So you know, the elite um, would eat certain things while the, the common people would eat other things. Um, so this, you know, continue, continuing on for a couple of hundred years, this separation still exists. Um, and also to, to note that Rockefeller went into Venezuela specifically um, to set up supermarkets so, um, so that they are more, quote, modernized and people can go to the supermarket and buy their food instead of um, having control of their own food and growing their own food, which creates problems even today. You know, something really interesting about this idea of supermarkets, uh, when I went to Ecuador a few years ago, um, they didn't have that same push of um, what what is described as um, kind of preparing Venezuela to be a reliable U.S. ally with a middle solid a mm -hmm. solid middle class, mm -hmm. um, and so therefore you know Rockefeller brought in these chain supermarkets in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. um, Ecuador, you're seeing that happen. I was there. Uh, well, now it's a while ago. So six years ago but um they were just having that big push of supermarkets markets coming in and i remember my friend explaining to me that these supermarkets change the way that people relate to each other and yeah. to the land because it changes your ideas of what food is and there's this narrative that was pushed that food from supermarkets that are completely used styrofoam and wrapped in plastic are seen as clean food while the food from the street vendors you know, I saw a few women sitting on blankets um, selling their food that they had grown on their own land are seen as dirty. And so I'm just thinking about like that narrative that I saw changing in that historical moment that I was in Ecuador mm -hmm. and that being the case in the 1950s in Venezuela of like, you know, that that's false because the food in the supermarkets is full of pesticide and GMOs. It's Absolutely. not the clean, healthy food. But not only that, so in specifically Venezuela and, and in the current quote-unquote food crisis, um, these supermarkets, first of all, a lot of these supermarkets are owned by a single, it's, it's almost, a, it's a monopoly, basically. Um, I think they're called uh, Polar, right? They're called Polar. And so again, like, even though Chavez you know, revolutionized um, Venezuela, they were still the ruling elite. They didn't eliminate <laughs> um, the ruling elite and sort of the, the power that they have. And so these supermarkets, right, like um, Becca said earlier that the middle class will hoard the food, these supermarkets are also withholding a lot of food um, to drive up the prices. Just a quick clarification, the chain of supermarkets are called Cada. But the Impresa, the owners are Impresas Polar. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really clearly seen through um, a food called arepa, which is a corn patty um, usually made by scratch for many Venezuelans throughout history, um, but introduced into this um, food consumerism through uh, supermarkets mm -hmm. <laughs> was a pre-cooked corn flour. So it's um, like a, something that you can easily make. And so that it was, they sent out, like in the 1960s, they really sent out um, people to train women of how to cook this from this pre-made corn flour rather than from scratch, which um, the working women had been doing forever. And it's more nutritional. The, 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 um, the pre-made removes the outer shell and removes all the nutrition. So that's a lot more nutritious. But um, 
so in terms of like the the food shortage um i don't know if we want to point out sort of the the holes in in the narrative um the first being you know the the same items missing from shelves have can continue to be found in restaurants so why might that be right so who goes to the restaurants and i think it's really important when we when when the media the the mainstream media here and in other parts of the world talk about Oh, the people, right? Who are these people? What it, what is their what is their class? What is their race? What is their gender? Like what you know, to think about it in a more nuanced way. Um, but again, like you know, if we're finding the same foods that are not on the shelves in in the Kata supermarkets, what are they doing in the restaurants? And who goes to the restaurants? Um, and the second is um, these private companies like Polar, who I think owns like the production as well as the supermarkets. So again, a, a real monopoly there. Um, they haven't slowed down their production. And third, um, these um, shortages um, can still be found and people are still able to find. It's not easy, but the, the reason why they're not on the shelves is not because of the government, not because of Maduro. It is because of these private companies um, and, and not putting them on the shelves. So, Can you talk to Nina a little bit about the black market? Sure. Um, so, I mean, I think anywhere you go in the world, you know, when there are shortages of any kind, um, the black market will pop up because people want to make money at the same time people wanting, needing the goods, but the problem with the black market is, sure, the product is available, but it's at a much higher price. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's the, the poor end up suffering because the people who have money um, can still buy it. Mm. And I think, too, just to be clear about the f- type of food that is still available is gr- f- food grown from the ground. Yeah. Um, the, and many people are returning back to that homegrown uh, corn, um, fruits and vegetables. Uh, the things that are not easily available are the packaged cornmeal, mm-hmm. uh, toilet paper, um, a few other uh, staple items like that right. um, that are really... Uh, and what's interesting is those exact staple items are the only things that are missing, whereas mm-hmm. you'll still find cheese on the shelves or mm-hmm. you'll still find like paper towels on mm-hmm. the shelves. So it's interesting how it's these very specific um, necessary items for ordinary people are not in the shelves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it clearly... Um, makes you question this idea of scarcity mm-hmm. and that this is an economic war being led by the same groups of people who owned the plantations in Venezuela, who have controlled production, who've controlled the economy and who control the media still to this day in Venezuela um, that are waging this economic war in order to take back power in the government. And something that I think is really important to point out, uh, you know, a, a, a real contradiction. is So in 1989, um, this was before Chavez, the IMF imposed structural adjustment programs onto Venezuela. And what, stru- what they are, austerity programs, basically, if you want to borrow money from the IMF, you have to strip all social services and and really tighten your belt and not spend any money for the public, right? So the people suffer um, uh, under this. And it was because of food in 1989 that there was an uprising, which it wasn't Chavez. It was the president before who um, opened fire on the people who, who rose up. But what's so interesting to me is that there were more people hungry at that time, right? A more a, a larger food shortage than there is right now, and the U.S. government did, did nothing, nothing mm-hmm. because the government that was in power before Chavez was pleasing the United States. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so what do we see today in the street? Um, I know that this uh, so-called food shortage. Um, has been portrayed pretty widely in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, so who can either Becca or Nina talk a little bit about who are, who are we seeing in the streets um, and 
and the violence or so-called violence uh, by whom. <laughs> yeah, it, it's important to ask that question, you know, who are the people, right? Quote, unquote, the people. Um, and I'm, I'm quoting from this article, which I'll, I'll link onto our Facebook page. The protesters are mostly the grandchildren of the middle class that emerged in the period of modernization and whitening with important links to the country's elite, forming a middle class elite alliance known as Sin Frinaje. So a lot of the violence that we see actually is coming from the white elite middle class. Um, and, you know, there are uh, a lot of the people who are being attacked are people with brown and black skin who are poor, who are chavistas. Um, and these people, this organization, this quote unquote opposition in the streets um, are purposefully targeting a lot of programs that were s uh, started under Chavez to provide food, you know, in the... Um, in the 1999 referendum that happened with the constitution being rewritten in Venezuela, it was a guarantee that all people would have the right to food. Mm -hmm. um, and so there were lots of programs started um, that made it so that people could get food. And these programs are being targeted now by the opposition mm -hmm. in a way that they're burning entire trucks of food that are being, we're not talking about the quote unquote humanitarian aid, but food that's being delivered is being burnt in the uh, riots in the street that are being led by the opposition. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you know, that's food, right? I mean, and it's important to think, like, what does food sovereignty mean? And that was one of the big things when Chavez came to power because of the 1989 food shortages imposed by the IMF, i.e. the United States, um, and, and the uprising came up. You know, the result was that in the Constitution, everybody has a right to food. I mean, what does that mean? Right? What does that mean for us here? Um, right. And I, I think that's a great parallel or a, a contradiction to show, too, is we in the United States have so many people without food um, and so many people without homes and so and so many illiterate people um, and we are not saying that the United States has a humanitarian crisis right now. But there is a humanitarian crisis in our supermarkets when I do research with students, you know, around our own food crisis. And the entire supermarket's owned by six companies. Mm -hmm. So if General Mills decided, like is happening with the, um, the Arepa pre-made flour, if General Mills decided, hey, we want things to change in the government, they would have the economic power to withhold staple goods from the American people that would leave our shelves empty here. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's really important yeah. to see that, to, as we again say, to see this as not um, a food shortage, but an economic war that's being posed uh, by the elites. And something, someone who has um, covered this pretty extensively is Abby Martin. Um, we'd like to play for you. Oh, sorry. Nina has something else no, no, to show for us. Um, I have to go get okay. We're going to play for you in a few moments um, an interview by Abby Martin. Um, she interviews the UN investigator and human rights reporter Alfred Desayas. Um, he was the first UN investigator to go to Venezuela in 21 years. And he was there from November to December 2017. Um, so we'll play you a little bit of this clip where he talks about his experience going to Venezuela um, and what, what he saw there, um, if that was what he deems a humanitarian crisis or not. And then um, also he, he explains a little bit more about the sanctions um, going on. So are we ready, Nina? We are ready. Okay, okay here, here we, we go. go. From Iraq to Libya to Venezuela, what usually preempts U.S. military intervention is the pretext of a humanitarian crisis. And right now, pretty much everyone speaks with authority about the fact that there is a human rights crisis caused by the Maduro government. What is surprisingly absent from the discourse is testimony from the human rights investigator designated by the U.N. to assess said crisis. Alfred de Zayas was the first U.N. investigator to go to Venezuela in 21 years. He has written 13 reports for the UN Human Rights Council, but his report on Venezuela was largely ignored. I spoke with Alfred to find out why. If you know 
a humanitarian crisis in Gaza and in Yemen and in Syria and mm. in Sudan and in Somalia, you wouldn't say there is a humanitarian crisis uh, in Venezuela. And at no point when I was walking the streets in Venezuela did I feel uh, threatened or did I see violence or did I uh, consider that this country was undergoing a humanitarian crisis. But uh, I see human rights more and more being instrumentalized to destroy human rights. There is a weaponization of human rights. I see the rule of law being instrumentalized to destroy the rule of law and unfortunately the complicity of the mainstream media. What I am saying to you, I think it would have been sensible to say it to the BBC. It would have been sensible to say it to the New York Times and to the Washington Post and to The Economist and to the Financial Times. But uh, at no time since I returned from Venezuela and since my report was officially presented to the Human Rights Council, have I been approached by any of these uh, organs who actually have a responsibility vis-a-vis -vis you and vis-a-vis -vis me and vis-a-vis -vis the people of the United States to inform. You know, many people will say the crisis cannot be blamed on the sanctions, of course, that sanctions are being used as a scapegoat uh, for Maduro's economic failures. Alfred, talk about the impacts of the sanctions thus far and the new sanctions that were just implemented on the state oil company. What is particularly Machiavellian, what is particularly cynical, is to cause an economic crisis that threatens to become a humanitarian crisis. That's what the United States has done through the financial blockade, through the um, uh, sanctions. And then to say, oh, we're going to offer you uh, humanitarian help. We're sending so and so many tons of humanitarian assistance uh, through U.S. aid. We're sending it to Colombia and we're going to deliver it. Now, uh, I think that here uh, Juan Guaido is uh, being uh, the, um, shall we say, the jockey. He is riding on the Trojan horse of uh, the United States. But uh, the solution of the problem is much easier than uh, the Band-Aid of sending uh, some packages of food or of medicine. Uh, the solution is in my report. What I told uh, the uh, Human Rights Council uh, is that the financial blockade has had uh, extremely adverse human rights impacts. Obviously, the origin of the current economic crisis is in the fall, the dramatic fall in the price of oil. But uh, normally, you would be able to fix that. Uh, a country as wealthy as Venezuela should have been able uh, to borrow money uh, on its enormous natural resources and uh, then would have been able to buy and sell like anybody else. But no. Uh, the United States has made sure that uh, because of the threat of enormous penalties to the U.S. Treasury, uh, the banks have been closing the accounts of uh, the Venezuelan government and of the uh, Petroleos of Venezuela. Already in July uh, 2017, uh, Citibank unexpectedly decided without prior notice and arbitrarily to close the bank accounts of the Central Bank of Venezuela and the Bank of Venezuela in November 2017. Uh, again, uh, Citibank uh, blocked uh, the uh, transfer uh, for a shipment of more than 300,000 doses uh, of insulin. In November 2017, the company Euroclear retained $1.65 billion dollars that the Venezuelan government had paid for the purpose uh, for the purchase of food and medicine. Uh, CITCO, the uh, uh, 
Venezuelan state oil company based in the U.S. has not been able to transfer its profits outside the United States of America. It needs that money to buy mm -hmm. food and medicine. And it is in the neighborhood, I think, by now of nine or ten uh, billion uh, dollars that have been withheld. There again, Wells Fargo Bank uh, withheld and canceled payment of seven million five hundred thousand made by Brazil to Venezuela uh, for the sale of electricity. In May 2018, the Venezuelan Minister of People's Power uh, informed that a financial transaction amounting to seven million dollars for the purchase of dialysis supplies for patients, including children and adolescents, uh, requiring such treatment had been blocked. So uh, you see here uh, the immorality of it, but not only the immorality of it, uh, there is personal criminal liability uh, for the impact of these sanctions. I mean, I am so... Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to WVEW 107.7 FM, your community radio station. This is Indigo Radio on air every Sunday from noon to one. And today's show is on Venezuela. Um, you are just listening to um, Abby Martin interview UN investigator and human rights reporter Alfred Desayas. Uh, he was explaining the weaponization of humanitarian aid as well as the sanctions that have been put on Venezuela um, and the contradiction that um, we are supporting Venezuela and giving them humanitarian aid when, in fact, we've been withholding uh, billions of dollars, right, more than a billion dollars, um, in uh, the sanctions that we have put on them. <coughs> yeah, and it's interesting when you think about the world in the connection with the narrative of the U.S. is going in to intervene for humanitarian reasons because people are starving in Venezuela. And then you look at Yemen, yeah. where it is the worst humanitarian disaster right now the ever experienced in Yemen extreme famine that is being caused by the U.S. the U.S. is not sending a humanitarian quote-unquote mission in they are dropping bombs and so what does this humanitarian aid actually mean um, in Colombia there are fires in Peru there are floods those places could all use humanitarian aid right now but instead the U.S. it's clear the U.S. has been wanting to take over Venezuela since Hugo Chavez was elected. So, um, I'm looking at the time right now. Yeah. Um, um, okay. Well, we'll, um, we will have more shows on Venezuela. Um, this isn't the, the last one. We're, we're sort of building up and we're lining up more people to interview people who've gone to Venezuela. So please do stay tuned. Um, so we'd like to thank Assis um, for coming on with us. And we just want to highlight some events that are coming up um, next weekend, March 8th um, and 9th. So March 8th, which is Friday night at Six, yep. is that right? Six o'clock. Um, we're showing the film Why We Fight mm -hmm. um, at the Brooks Memorial Library upstairs in the community room. Um, and so it's a whole weekend where uh, we are going to be talking about perpetual war. Which is quite related to our show on Venezuela today. Absolutely. So we so, really hope that you'll join us. Yeah. So Friday night we'll have um, a film viewing and a short discussion afterwards. But on Saturday from 2 to 4 to 5 p.m. same place um, at the Brooks Memorial Library in the in the community room upstairs um, we're going to have a study and discussion um, where we're going to go a little bit more into depth um, about the U.S. and war um, and perpetual war um, and, imperialism and imperialism as well yeah. um, so this is open to the public um, we encourage everyone to join us again two to five on Saturday, March 9th at the Brooks Memorial Library. Thank you so much, Brooks Memorial Library, for hosting us once again. Absolutely. Um, and then Friday, March 8th at 6 o'clock, the film Why We Fight will be shown also at Brooks Library. Um, we hope that you can attend both events, and we will post them on Indigo Radio and Brattleboro Solidarity and also the Spark Teacher Education Institute, of which we are all a part. Absolutely. Um, so... 
Thank we're going to go out with a song um, by Anna Tiju um, featuring Sh- um, Shadia Mansour. And it's called um, Somos Sur. We'll see you next week. Tú nos dices que debemos sentarnos, pero las ideas solo pueden levantarnos, caminar, recorrer, no rendirse ni retroceder, ver, aprender como esponja absorbe, nadie sobre todos, faltan todos, suman todos, para todos, todo para nosotros, soñamos en grande que se caiga el imperio, lo gritamos algo, no queda más remedio, esto no es utopía, es alegre rebeldía del baile de los que sobran de la danza tuya mía, levantarnos para decir ya va. Caña América Latina se suba Un barro con casco con la pizza patear el fiasco Provocar un social terremoto en este charco you